0: And turn your Bibles to
1: Revelation chapter 21. That's where we're going to be this morning. I I have normally made it the pattern on Easter Sundays in my five years here to um, give a defense of the resurrection. And to start almost every time with giving the evidence of the resurrection, answering the theories that are against the resurrection. Um, I, I normally spend a good amount of my time doing that. I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, I'll just simply say this. I'll kind of give you a brief story and and maybe to call you to, if you're not a believer, if you don't necessarily believe in the the truth of the resurrection, the reality that there was a Jesus, a man, Jesus, who died on the cross, who was risen to life, and there was evidence. There was a man named Simon Greenleaf. He was a noted law professor for Harvard Law School, and at one point, he was an atheist as well. He set out to prove forensically and legally, that Jesus did not rise from the dead. And so he went and looked at the evidence. And in the course of his, um, this man, very erudite man, very looking at the facts and the figures and the objective evidence, eventually, while he was trying to be convinced that it didn't happen, was convinced that it did happen. And here's what he said. He said he would take more faith to believe that the resurrection did happen, didn't happen, than it did to believe that it did indeed happen. It takes more faith to believe that the resurrection didn't happen than it takes to believe that it did. Because the evidence is overwhelming. There are eyewitnesses all over the place. We see it even those who didn't follow Jesus and love Jesus attest to the truth of the resurrection. But this morning, instead of looking heavily at the evidence of the resurrection, I want to look instead where we almost always end. And almost all the times I've spoken about the Easter, where we almost always end is Revelation 21 which is the the deep and full implications of the resurrection and what it means for our future. And so that's what we're going to look at here. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6. Read along in your own Bibles as I read out loud. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen for you. Revelation 21, pick it up in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payments. This ends the reading of our holy and errant infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. But the word of God, may it stand forever. Well, um, in order to understand Revelation, and some of you have gotten into Revelation at various times in your life, and you immediately run out like it's a frightening dream. Uh, Revelation baffles people. It is in the nature of the literature. It's a genre called apocryphal literature. The Bible is this beautiful uh, liter- literary device. Even those who don't know, love the Bible or care necessarily about the God of the Bible believe it is perhaps the most amazing piece of literature in the world because it has narrative and it has history, it has poetry, and it, yes, it even has some science fiction, some apocryphal kind of language. What is going on in Revelation 21? If you've ever seen a junction box of wires that go on throughout a house and they come to one particular place, and if you've ever seen a junction box, and all, there's lots of wires in there, and you look at it, and if you're like me, someone who really doesn't have a whole lot of skills, you look at that and you go, what in the world is going on here? This looks like a tangled mess. And that's how it feels like reading Revelation. It is, um, it is John bringing together perhaps all the various strands of the Bible, all these kind of electrical strands coming into the junction box of imagery. And he will weave together all these different images and metaphors within one, in just a few verses. For example, here we even see a city that wears a dress. That's an odd imagery, that he's weaving together multiple things. But to get it where I want us to go this morning, we have to understand the full context, that there is an actual historical context for Revelation and for Revelation 21. You see, John is writing in this book his vision of what God has given to him, but he's writing to a particular people. He's writing to the early Christians who are at the time in which John is writing are entering into and beginning to experience the first most significant wave of persecution in the history of the church. They are under indeed perhaps the most horrific persecution of the first couple centuries under the emperor Domitian. During this time when John is writing this books and as he writes this book and sends it out to various churches, the church is and Christians were experiencing a number of things, the plundering of their homes. Their children were taken away from them and sold into slavery. Some of them were impaled on stakes and they would have pitch thrown upon them and their bodies would be used to light the fires of the parties around Rome. They were throwing Christians into the arenas to be ripped apart by lions and the crowds cheered and awed and ooed at their deaths. The early church was the real life Hunger Games. That's what was going on here. You want to say, you watch The Hunger Games with your kids or you let your teenager start reading those books and you go, listen, if you're going to read those books understand this. This was real. This has happened to people. And it happened to us. This is part of our lineage. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, that's what Domitian said. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then we will crucify you just like we crucified Jesus. In fact, the roads that led into Rome were lined with the crosses of Christians as people came into the city to remind people. For miles on end, outside of the city, moving into the city, that this is a place where Christians are not welcome. And it is to these people, facing these circumstances, facing these kind of persecutions, that Revelation 21 is written. That these people might need this. You think these people need some hope? That's what John is writing to give them. To give them a vision, a bright and beautiful future, because the right now ain't so pleasant. That's the kind of life that they're experiencing. They need a hope. They are desperate for hope in the midst of the situation. They're, and and as, as bad as their situation is, the reality is for all of us, we all need hope. We can't live without it. Now, we tend to think of this word hope as being simply dream, as dream. But when you, what you hope for in the future affects your views and affects your perspective on life today more than just about any other factor. For example, let me illustrate it this way. Viktor Frankl, who was a, uh, a noted Jewish psychiatrist and brain surgeon in 1942, was deported by the Nazis to a concentration camp. Frankl lost his wife and his parents to the Nazi extermination of the Jews, and he himself spent three years in two of the most notorious concentration camps, first Dachau and then Auschwitz. But to, um, while he was in these concentration camps, as a noted doctor and psychiatrist, he began to try to observe and to even counsel those who were around him who were in the midst of despondency and were experiencing thoughts of suicide, ending their life in the midst of the hell that was Auschwitz and Dachau. And Frankel noticed this, that there were some people who as they came into the extermination camps and they lived their days there, that they would rather quickly shrivel up and die. Even if their circumstances hadn't quite yet reached the level that others had experienced. Whereas other people could endure, seemingly endure the, the horrors of the concentration camp for years and years on end and remain strong. And what he observed, he observed it this way, that it was those who had a future hope were those who remained strong. But it was those who lost hope that rather rapidly shriveled up. And died. He actually illustrates this with one story of a man who was in the camp who had a dream. A a particular, he felt like he was a vision, a prophetic vision, that on March 30th of a particular year, that they would be freed and that the war would be over and they would be liberated. And his friend believed this dream was a true; was going to come true. And for a while, because of this hope and this vision, he he had resiliency in all that he faced in the concentration camp. But as the days grew closer and closer to March 30th, he became more and more despondence and he said this he writes this in his diary on march 29th as the realization sunk in with his friend that the hope for liberation was not coming his friend contracted a free a fever and he said on this on march 30th the man then went into a coma and by march 31st the man was dead if you lose hope in this life you lose life itself we need hope we can't live without hope we are a people though in our culture and our society, who are losing hope. We are becoming cynical and selfish and pessimistic. The national deck looks like it's going to strangle us, right? Even the good news, we say, oh, man, look at that tax cut. That's great. Not forgetting that we've now strangled ourselves with even more debt. While we are politically polarized. We are becoming a culture that is more and more morally bankrupt. We are, my goodness, we can't even, we are, we're afraid to even send our kids to school. Think about this. We used to know the names of mass shooters. Do you even remember the name of the Las Vegas mass shooter? In the last couple of years, only two years ago was the Orlando Nightclub shooting. 50 people died and 58 people were wounded. That was less than two years ago. The Las Vegas mass shooting was, had 58 dead and 851 wounded. And yet we don't even think about them anymore because we've had so many shootings since then. This is the despair and hopelessness of our society. For the first time ever, studies show that for the first time ever, American, in, in American history, parents feel that the future that they're handing off to their kids is not as good as the future that they thought they had when they were blessed by their parents. Without a hope for the future, we are simply becoming an increasingly selfish, cynical, and pessimistic people. And we even see it around Easter. You know, in 2012, one of the biggest events in Macon, Georgia, every year, one of the largest citywide events was the big, massive Easter egg hunt. But you know, in 2012, they had to cancel the Easter egg hunt. Because the previous year, parents had gotten into so many fights, and they had trampled so many children trying to find eggs for themselves and for their kids that they could no longer hold the Easter egg hunt because it was unsafe. This is the selfishness of a people who have no hope. Our cultural perspective could be summed up in the dark words of Jack Nicholson in the movie As Good As It Gets, which is a phenomenal movie. It has all the cynicism and sarcasm of Jack Nicholson, and he's walking out of, he's got the scene where he's walking out of a therapist's office and he's walking into the waiting room, and there's all these people waiting to see the psychiatrist and the therapist. And he stops, and he looks at people with that kind of sardonic grin that Jack Nicholson has. He looks at him and he goes, have you ever wondered whether if this is as good as it gets? And walks out the door. Maybe there isn't anything better. Maybe this is as good as it gets. Maybe there is no hope. We are thirsting for hope. We are longing for it. We are are like people in a dry desert, parched. In particular, we long for something, a beautiful vision of the future that would give us hope today. And that is exactly what Easter is. Easter and the truth of the resurrection is the great giver of hope for a people living in a parched and weary land. And what does John give to a people who are thirsting, who are desperate for hope? What does he give to a people who are still experiencing death and a people who are mourning probably far more than you and I will ever mourn, who are experiencing tears and loss and pain and separation and sorrow? Where does he point them? He points them to a beautiful future, to a beautiful future. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, the great and classic passage on the resurrection It says this, that Jesus' resurrection was merely the first fruits. You know what the first fruits means? It means it's the first fruit that's showed up on the tree that you plucked at, but it is the sign that there is many, many, many more fruits to come. Which means this, that as great and wondrous as the resurrection is, in one way we could say this, that it was, it's something small in the grand scale of what God is doing in the landscape of history. The resurrection in this picture is merely the beginning of a vast and eternal and universal harvest that is coming. The resurrection has secured for us a beautiful future. That's what it has done, and that's what we want to look at this morning. We get a picture of our beautiful future here this morning, and there's three components that I want to point you to this morning for your hope. Something for you to cling to in a broken world. The beautiful future that lies ahead for you. The first thing we see is this the hope we have in our beautiful future is we can have it because we get a new world. We get a new world. Verse 1, it says this Then I saw heaven, new heavens, and new earth, and for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I don't think this means that God picks up this world and kind of throws it in the dumpster heap and gives us a new solar system. Though, if he wanted to do that, he certainly could. The hope of the prophets and the hope of the scriptures, the leaning of the scriptures, though, is this. Is that when God talks about making things new, when he's making this a new world and giving us a new heaven and a new earth, is he means he's renovating this place. God will renovate the whole thing like a global rehab project. Think HDTV is what is going on here because God doesn't merely love people. He also loves his creation. In Genesis 1, while he looks at man, Adam and Eve, and he says, I have made you in my image and you are very good. He looks at all the rest of creation and says, it is good as well. And Paul actually tells us in Romans 8 that all creation is groaning and longing and waiting for the day. And this is what we see happen in chapter 21 of Revelation, that the longing and the groaning of creation will finally be met and God will make things as they ought to be. Now, what does it mean though by newness? What is the sense of this rehab project? We talk new heaven and new earth and all things being made new. And commentators may debate on this and there's a couple of different ways you could take this. First, you could take one, one particular view, which is this. It just say the earth is going to be utterly destroyed and then rebuilt. To use HGTV language, you would go in, you'd buy a piece of property, and you would take everything off that piece of property. The slab, the wood, the studs, everything goes, and we'd be building an entirely new building with entirely new structures and an entirely new floor plan upon that piece of property. That's one view. Another view, some people would say there's the view of just simply renewal. That when the world is it's going to be restaged, it's going to get a fresh coat of paint and perhaps some new furniture and some new cabinetry and some great granite countertops. So that's what's going to happen at the end of all things. The world gets a makeover of some sorts. But what I actually think it means is it's something in between that when we talk about the world being made new. As I think it means that the means the world is remade, you see, the Greek word here for new, there's two different words you can have for new. One is neos, which means brand new, out of nothing. Then there's kinos, which means remade. And kinos is the word that is used here at least three different times in this passage. Remade. This is more than merely a paint job and new furniture. But it is not utter and absolute destruction. This is a remodeling that goes to the studs. It will involve some destruction, right? That's the fun part. We're experiencing it now, right? There is some destruction that is going on. You see it outside of our walls. Walls have come down in order to do some remodeling around here. It is not merely paint job, but it is not absolute and utter destruction. Which means this, is the new heavens and the new earth you will recognize, like an old dream, like something that, you, that you comes up again, that you will recognize it. For example, if I were to give you, if I were to be, if I were to told you a mechanic had an old Corvette or an old Mustang, and he were to re- redo that Mustang, he were to remodel it a little bit, he were to update it, would, and you would look at it, you, you wouldn't say, my goodness, this is a Hummer. You would say, this looks like a Mustang. It keeps its former appearance, but now it is made new. It is now better. Jesus' resurrection is a picture of this. You see, when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, we have a glimpse of our future hope and our future glory because the disciples, they recognize him in some way, but at the same time, he was also radically different. It was Jesus with his wounds in his hands and his side, but he was also beautiful and glorious. He was physical, but he was more than merely physical. He was the kind of one who could fly and move through walls one um, particular commentator named N.T. Wright says this. He says, one day God is going to do with the entire cosmos what he has already done with the resurrected Jesus. He's going to make it entirely beautiful and glorious. And the picture that I want, the, the implication for us is this. The implication for us is this, is that what your vision of heaven needs to be shaped around what this world is going to look like. You see, for, for too many of us, we think of heaven as being this. Some faraway place that not some restored earth, but some faraway place where we're going to kind of float around on clouds, and we're going to wear white onesie outfits, and we're going to be hanging out with baby cherubs, and we're all going to be playing harps. Now, if that is heaven, most of us are thinking, I'd rather stay here. But that is not what heaven is. The vision of heaven is a world remade which means it keeps all of its structures, which means you work in the perfect world, but you will enjoy it. It will not come with its toil and labor. Remember, Adam, they love to work in the garden, to expand the garden, to enjoy this perfect and remade world. We're going to walk and we're going to run and we're going to dance and you're going to make food and you're going to make music and it's going to be wondrous and joyous and you're be all to the glorious gods. You're going to eat cinnamon rolls without guilt and without the calories. Now that is a good day. That means that the things of this world that you enjoy, you'll experience there, but in the fullness of what it was meant to be. If you've ever been to Hawaii, can you imagine, as glorious as Hawaii is, that that is the cursed and broken Hawaii? If you love a filet mignon, imagine what it will taste like in heaven. It will never be cooked over medium rare. (laughs) But even more than that, there will be no more evil There's this strange phrase that says, there will be no more sea. Now, for some of you, you're looking at it and going, listen, (laughs) that just ruined heaven for me because heaven's got to have a beach. What's that, what it means. In apophical language throughout in the Bibles and throughout that that period of the world, the sea was seen as the place of evil and death and chaos. And therefore, to say there would be no more sea is to say things are the way they ought to be. Things are structured the way they ought to be. There is no evil anymore. There's no more chaos anymore. Imagine a world where there's no more evil in it, no more bullying, no more divorce, no more abusive husbands, no more school shootings, a place where children know they are valuable, where children are not torn apart in their mother's wombs. Imagine a world where there are no teenage pregnancies and a world where there's no molestation or rape. That's a world without the sea, without the evil and the chaos, a place where you love your kids, where there is no more strife. Imagine such a world. That's the world that is coming. There's a biblical word that describes the wholeness and beauty of the world that is to come. It's called shalom. It's a Hebrew word for peace. Now, we, we think of peace as simply the absence of war. But peace, the Hebrew understanding of shalom, is that all things are, made, are as they ought to be. And at the fall of man, for the rest of human history, what we have been living with is we've been living in a world with the showers of Shalom just wandering just around us, cracking and crushing and piercing our feet. But one day, one day, all things will be as they ought to be, and Shalom will be restored. That's the new world. That's the first vision we get of our future hope, the beautiful future that is ahead of us. The second thing we get is we we get a new relationship. Verse 2 and 3, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. (laughs) The great point here is God will be with us. You will be in God's presence. There will be nothing that keeps you from him, and there's nothing that keeps him from you. This is saying that God is present with us in his beautiful bridal city. It is the city adorned like a bride. In other words, it is a city wearing a dress. That's what's going on here. That's the imagery that we're giving. Now, since this is the apocryphal language where there's multiple metaphors being woven together, so let's see if I can unwind it just really briefly here for you. First, the whole idea of a holy city. A holy city, this new Jerusalem. We read, if you were to read the rest of Revelation chapter 21, particularly verses 15 through 27, John's going to go into great detail to give the dimensions, the structure, even in like stadia and feet and meters as to how big and large this new Jerusalem is going to be. And what commentators realize is actually what they look at this and they look at John's description that this new Jerusalem is the exact same dimensions as the dimensions of the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple. Now what is he saying in that? There's a new Jerusalem that has these exact dimensions. The Holy of Holies was the place where the the high priest would go into with the cleansing blood of the sacrifice and only once a year would he go in there. And the Holy of Holies was this place where God was present amongst his people. It was the sense where God, there was nothing in between Him and His people in this small place in the temple, and so what He's saying is this: is that this new Jerusalem, God's presence will be everywhere. That there will be, it won't be this the special room where you can go, but God will be with you wherever He is, and you'll feel the fullness and the wholeness of His expression in His dwelling with you. And then we have the bridal language, the wedding dress imagery. What does that mean? And it means. We have a city, a beautiful city, where God dwells. Can God dwell anywhere where there is unrighteousness and unholiness, where there is uncleanliness? No. And that is the imagery of the bride. That we have a city here adorned in white, in perfection, in moral beauty, in cleanliness, in holiness, in righteousness. And this is the city that God will dwell in. This is God's city and God's people, God's temple that is now perfected. And it's righteous. Now, this imagery, this, these metaphors are here to pick up on a great theme that's in the Bible. And it's this theme. is that God's relationship with us is like a love story. That he has described his relationship with his people as being that between a bride and a groom. And actually, we actually see the same imagery picked up in regards to city. And we'll look at that in just a second. But the story of the Bible is this. is that you were designed to walk with God... To be an intimate relationship with God and yet we lost our groom. We ran away from him. We shoved him away. We divorced ourselves from God. In fact, when God calls himself a people in Israel, he actually, you'll use this imagery of a bridal city and he's referring to Jerusalem and for most particularly in in a place called Ezekiel chapter 16, where what we'll still see there is he'll talk about the history of his relationship with Jerusalem and he talks about her as if she is a beautiful girl. And you might think this is very odd, but actually, remember, this is how we refer to our cities, right? We'll say she. She is this. So as as much as it seems rather esoteric and distant from us, this is still a part of our language today. But he speaks about this the city Jerusalem, this bride Jerusalem, and how he has given himself to her. And yet what she has done is she has run after other lovers. And that she has whored herself out time after time after time to other gods and to other nations. And he has, she has betrayed him. And he is, she has heaped shame upon herself because she has longed to satisfy herself with the idolatry of this world. Instead of satisfying herself with the love of her husband and God's. All this longing, all this running, all this seeking has made this bride sell herself into slavery, and she is tremendously thirsty. She's longing for that which will satisfy her. The medieval philosophers call it this way, that we have a God-shaped hole in our hearts. A longing that will only be satisfied when we come back into relationship with the God who loves us. Now what is seen in corporate and metaphorical language here in Revelation 21 to try to bring it down a little bit more to some of you who need to think of the individual. Think of the woman at the well. Then, when Jesus came to her while he was living on earth in the gospel account, we have Jesus goes to this this woman and she is seeking water and he says, I have a water that is everlasting. If you drink it, you will never thirst again. And she goes, huh? And he goes. I know that you're a person who is longing and you are thirsty. And this world has not satisfied you. And I know this because I know you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. That the means by which you have sought to satisfy yourself in this world is to run to man after man after man, and none of them have worked. And you have a craving and a parchness in your soul. And he says that not, not physical water, but I provide the spiritual and the emotional and the relational water, the thing that will help you be satisfied. That's what God says to us. The only means, the longings of your heart will only be met when you come back into the presence of God and when you know him as your father and as your lover, as a friend. This is the greatest longing and the greatest thirst of the human heart, to be back with our father, to be back with our lover, to be back with our friend. See, we're like the little boy in the juvenile detention center who I read about a number of years ago, who was in Indianapolis, and the security guard would be walking the hall each night, and the security guard wrote about this, about a young boy was there, and this young boy had killed his father. That's why he was there. And every night, the security guard, as he walked the halls, would hear the sobs of this little boy, and he would be crying out, I want my daddy. I want my daddy. This is us. That we are the ones who did it. We separated ourselves and yet it is the greatest longing of our heart to be reconciled with God. We are thirsty, and we're cut off from him, and until we are back with him, nothing else will satisfy. Revelation 21 says that the future that we have is that God will dwell with us, and we will dwell with him, and there will be nothing that will separate us again. But in order to get there, we have to be beautiful. How do we get there? This brings up one other piece of the imagery. In Ephesians chapter 5, we have this imagery. You hear about it at weddings, that Christ... Is like a husband to us. He, in this word to husbands, it says this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That's what is going on in Revelation 21. It is that day. It is the day when God has done the cleansing, blameless work upon us. He has washed us. He has made us a beautiful bride. And now, Revelation 21 is the day in which He presents the New Jerusalem, His church, His people, His bride to Himself as a gift. And she will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing so that she might be holy and without blame. What's interesting about Ephesians 5 is that we're told, if you're a Christian, that Jesus clothes you. This is the story of the gospel. It's this, is that we were a bride that had run away. We had ransomed ourselves to other lovers. We had covered ourselves with their sin and with the shame and the guilt. And what he did is in the, on the cross, he took that shame and his, that guilt upon himself. And he took the penalty that it deserves. He paid the penalty of the ransom that it must be paid in order to win us back. But not only did he do that, but he gave you his righteousness. He took your sin And he gave you his righteousness. So not only are you clean, then you have to keep yourself clean. But now he has given you the wedding dress of his righteousness. That's the objective. So that legally and forensically before God you are beautiful. But not only that, it also says in Ephesians 5, but he's doing a subjective work. Imagine a wedding dress that you put on that makes you look beautiful. But imagine if all the pushing and the tugging that a wedding dress would do, that it actually would radically and actually shape your body. That when you take that dress off, everything else just doesn't go again. <laughs> but it actually is shaping you. That's the conforming work of Jesus' righteousness. But he's doing it from the outside and from the inside that he's transforming you so that you look more and more like the gloriousness of Jesus Christ. Listen, at the, Revelation 21, at the end of all things, all of creation will be as it was made to be. But here's also the truth, that at the end of Revelation 21, you will finally be all that you were made to be. C.S. Lewis says this, that if we were to see one of us in glory in heaven one day, we would be tempted to bow down in worship because of how beautiful we will be in God's sight. That right now you are objectively righteous in God's sight. He sees you with the wedding dress of his righteousness. But one day, my goodness, you will reflect the radiance of Jesus Christ in all of who you are. So perhaps you're feeling dirty this morning. Perhaps for you, the future hope that you long for and that you need is to be back in a relationship with God and to be be able to stand before Him without shame and without guilt. You have two truths for you. One is today you can do that because Christ has covered you with the wedding dresses of His righteousness. And then two, you can look forward to the day in which you will stand before Him both objectively and subjectively righteous in His sight. You will be beautiful. You will be beautiful. And when that day happens, what will, what will you, you'll get to see God. You see, we see now, we experience God as in a mirror dimly, right? We see his glory as if it's distant. We get little rays of it, but one day we will see him as he really is. See him in all the fullness of his beauty and his glory, and we will reign with him, and we will worship him, and we will bow down before him for thousands of years. Perhaps all that work I talked about earlier, that will come after a couple of millennia just talking about how great he is, of standing with our mouths agape, restored to him. So you get a new world, you get a new relationship, and lastly, you get a new life. Verse 4, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Man, the beautiful truth for us today, the already and not yet, is that God has saved us from the punishment of sin. But will, on that day, we will be saved from the power and presence of sin. Fully and finally, all pain, all the consequences from living in a broken world, we will no longer experience that then. And we know from all these other places that death is simply now a tool that will usher us into eternal life and eternal blessings. But the reality, what we prayed about earlier, is this. In death today, there is still sorrow. Most of you still are like, you're not looking forward to death, but you know it's coming it's the reality, the, the prick and the, the, the sorrow is still there. There will be a day when on the other side of, we will be on the other side of death and we will experience a resurrection. And it won't be, because we often think of resurrection being, as being resuscitation. You know, people who go into Tanner and they're like shocked back into life, that's resuscitation. They're going to die again at another day. But the resurrection that we talk about here in this new life is a resurrection that will never, never end. You'll live eternally, but we, and we long for that day, but until then, we are still experiencing the sting of death. One final shot. We are told that one day, all the worst things that happen in our life will be fully and finally seen in the great context of God's glory and God's story in this world. One day, as J.R. Tolkien says to the mouth of one of the characters in Lord of the Rings, all the sad things on earth will come true, but not today. Today, we are still weeping and mourning and tearful. We still experience the sorrows. We still think about the loss and the sorrows of yesterday. We don't see them in the fullness of their grand grand story and how God's using them for our good. We know that to be true, but still the pain is with us today. But there will be a day, one day, on this day, we will know. We will know. And that all the sorrows of our life... On that day, will be seen as joys because we see them in the greater story of how God redeemed us and is making us new. One day, on this great day, on this new life, as we are ushered in, the same hands that were pierced for you will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And we will be ushered into the other side, to the new life, where there will be no more tears except for tears of joy. But not today. Today, we still weep. Man, wouldn't it be life... Be great if there wasn't an inevitable oncoming train of death. That would be a life of freedom, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be great if we never experienced separation from those we love? We still experience that today, but one day we won't. Wouldn't life be great if we never sinned? Amen. Wouldn't life be great if we never got hurt and our bodies never decay? Wouldn't life be great if we if life was never a series of just ups and downs, but life is merely just an ever ever other increasing experience of joys wouldn't life be great if you never spent a moment wondering whether you're valuable and you're worthy and you have purpose wouldn't life be great if you lived in constant unfettered leap in the air experience of knowing that you were loved listen the christian life today is full of this isn't it you you know bible says you're loved but many days you don't feel that way heaven you'll have no bad days you'll have a completely new life. It will be beautiful. You long for that day because that is the day that God has made you for. Why did Jesus come to the cross? Why did he rise from the dead? It's for that day. For that day. When there will be no more wondering. Listen, this is a little bit cliche to quote from the Passion of the Christ. I've never done it, but I'm going to do it today. Because there's one really, really incredible moment. the depiction of Jesus carrying the cross He's been beaten to a pulp, and he's weakened and Ben did an amazing job describing that Friday night. In the order of it all, he collapses in the scene. And his mother runs to his side, and he looks up, and the smallest smile comes to his face. And Mel Gibson takes the words from Revelation 21. He looks at his mother, and he says, Mother, I am making all things new. A beautiful future and a beautiful hope that sent Jesus to the cross. That is the vision that he has. And it's the vision that you need to have the hope for today. One last thing. Who gets to be a part of this? Who gets to be in this city and part of the city? Is it the great? Is it the courageous? Is it the bold? Is it the uber moral? Is it the power brokers of this world? Who gets in? What does verse 6 say? the thirsty. Verse 6 says this, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, which means he's the beginning of the end, this is coming true. There's nothing before him and nothing after him, and to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is an echo from Isaiah 51 verse 55 verse 1, it says this, come everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You want to experience this hope one day? You don't do it by just girding yourself up, by being super moral, or saying, I've cleaned up my life, or I've gotten rid of all my shady business practices, or I've stopped cheating on my spouse. What you do is you come to God and you throw yourself at his feet and you say, I am thirsty. Would you fill me up? And the answer will be absolutely. I've longed for you to ask. Let's ask him now. Will you pray with me? Oh, gracious God. um, I think of those in this room maybe who um, have never trusted in you and maybe it's the stumbling block of the resurrection. The audacity that we would say that a man died for us and then defeated death and rose from the dead. Lord, it is audacious. But without that audacity, all this hope is fruitless. It's a pipe dream. But Lord, if you defeated death, then nothing else can defeat you. So, gracious God, I pray that those in this room this, this morning, who, if they don't know you, that, um, Lord, at the very least, they would be compelled by the beauty of this particular vision. And they would, might say, I don't know if it's true, but I want it to be true. And that they would begin to investigate. Could this resurrection thing be real? Could it be true? Oh, Lord, for um, so many of us, even those of us who believe in the resurrection, our life is, um, we run to the spring of living water, and then for some reason we run away. And we go and try to have our cisterns filled with the things of this world. Oh, gracious God, I pray that um, we would repent of that. And there would be joyous repentance to say, God, we turn away from these things and we come back to your grace. And we come back and we confess time and time again that, gracious God, we are thirsty. We are thirsty. And only the living water that is provided in Jesus Christ will satisfy that thirst. Gracious God, I say that. But I long for you, Lord, for you to fill me with the joy of Jesus. And that from me would be a flow of, of, of living water that's a life of joy and hope and fruitfulness because I cling to this vision. Pray that for the people in this room as well. Lord, you've made all this possible in the name of your precious son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.